All right, Jesus, we thank you so much for this day. We pray that you bless this time um, as we spend together. God, I thank you for every person here. I thank you for all the children downstairs. Um, God, thank you for the privilege of um, inviting people into community and sharing a space together and learning how to live life together. God, I pray that as we continue to grow, that we would be intentional about the way that we love each other in prayer and that we would be intentional about inviting people into this community. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what's on my heart is this question of who are we inviting to church? You can see it on that sweet screen on that uh, <laughs> stool right there. Um, but this is actually a question that I've been mulling about um, for a while now is um, that article that I read where the guy was like, home church is not a church. And I'm like, boo, from the other side of the screen. Um, and he made a really good point, though. I mean, I totally understand like there. Churches don't grow when churches have an inward mentality, which is, these are my people, so, like, I don't need any more people in a part of this community. And while I deeply, don't get me wrong, while I deeply value relationship and community, if the church, and I'm not saying our church or the church on the street, but church as a whole, if we are not intentional about inviting people into a space where we feel loved, then... It's essentially like having the best gift in the world that you will never run out of, but you won't share. It's like having a place where you can come and be who you are and still feel loved and acknowledged, but refusing to share. And I think about it like we have this incredible privilege. I was talking to somebody about it this morning. We have this incredible privilege of living life together. Like we have this incredible privilege of gathering into a space and knowing each other's names and knowing each other's story like it is a privilege to know someone's story and we can come here and we can gather here and in my mind I think how many people just want to be known how many people want to feel like they have a space to thrive in and so that has been challenging to me because in in being in ministry since I graduated college it was always so hard for me to invite people to church because when they come to church, I'm working. Like, I can't sit with, if you come on a Sunday morning, like, I'm sorry, but like, I can't sit with you. I'm like running around. Uh, you probably don't want to sit in the front row, which is where I have to sit because my pastor told me I have to sit there. So like, if you come on a Sunday, like, I really hope somebody talks to you <laughs> because I wouldn't be able to really. And um, knowing that, like, in building this community, I want us to think, who do we know that we love, that we believe can, like who wants to be known, who wants community? And I know it's uncomfortable to invite somebody to somebody else's home. Like, come to somebody's house. I promise we're not weird. A lot. Uh come into an intimate community where you cannot sneak in and you cannot sneak out. Come. I know Lou is like, all right. We're to the bathroom all of a sudden. You're like walking on the side of the house. How do you fit through the bathroom window? <laughs> but just the idea is like, I understand it's so uncomfortable to invite people to church because of like maybe fear of judgment, maybe fear of like, no. But I, again, it could be my personality. is like, I... The worst thing in the world isn't a no, but to me, the worst thing in the world is knowing somebody needs it, I have it, and I refuse to share it. I refuse to invite people into this space. And it, and the word refuse is like really strong, and it connotates a lot of negativity, but it's the, the lack of intentionality to even put it out there. 
right? And so that's just been on my heart lately. It's been challenging to me, like, who am I inviting to church? Who am I inviting into my home and into my life? Who am I inviting into this gathering space? And so I want to challenge each of you who... Who is on your heart to invite to church? Who do you know needs community? And the reality is like this gathering space should not be for people who only believe in Jesus. This gathering space should not be for people who identify as Christians. This gathering space should just be for people who want to be known and want to be loved. And that should be why we invite them. And so that's kind of been on my heart lately. Uh, we're And then going into what we're teaching on tonight, we're going to talk through a, like a really like long sermon of one verse so like buckle down guys if it's one verse this could be like a two-hour experience so um yeah i'm dead serious and so we're doing matthew 7 12 and this is known as the golden rule so uh chase since you're sitting right there can you read that bad boy out loud we don't even, we can do every other word we can switch it up to see how it goes do 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 to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is <clears throat> this is the essence of all that is taught in the law and prof and the prophets. Awesome. So, what is the golden rule? Have you guys ever heard of that term? What is it? Like, what would if somebody was like, Nico, what's the golden rule? What would you say to them? Do to others what you would want them to do. Boom. That's essentially the golden rule. And why it was attributed, known as the golden rule, was uh, heads up now. I'm just going by memory because all my notes are not here. Um, but essentially, it was attributed to a Roman emperor. Um, forgot his first uh, first name, but his last name was Severus. And I know, it, no joke. And he actually had this rule written in gold on his chamber walls. And so that's why we attribute it as the Roman uh, golden rule. But what's unique about this rule is that it's not unique to Christianity uh, at all. <laughs> it is a universal rule. It is when I was raised Buddhist, and that is essentially Buddhism. Essentially, Buddhism, which believes in reincarnation, is like don't do bad things to people because you might be reincarnated as like less than. So, like, do unto others what you want people to do to you with the hopes that you will be reincarnated as something, like, more than, like, a bug. And so, with the golden rule, with this universal rule, it is not unique to us. But why it is so incredibly important in this, in this section of scripture is that the golden rule is essentially the crux or the pinnacle of what Jesus taught the entire time throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that if you can tie up all of what he taught about hypocrisy and law and legalism and love and all those things, it can be tied into do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. Boom, that's it. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. And it reminds me of an experience that Jesus has where um, he... He had a religious, young religious ruler come to him, and it says he came to him in the dark of the night, which is very symbolic. He wanted to be hidden. He did not want other people to know that he was coming to see Jesus. And he's like, what? What is this all about? And Jesus says, love God, love people. On these two, all the laws hang. And that essentially means that if you read through the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, loving God and loving people all the Ten Commandments can fall into either of those categories. And so Jesus is saying, everything I just taught you, this is it. 
do unto others what you would want them to do in, unto you. And so this brought me to this idea that you cannot expect from others what you yourself cannot be or do. It's that in relationship, because we were built for community, we were built for relationship, and the beauty of the diversity of how God makes people is that, like, this is a perfect example. Babe, you're always my example. But if you do not know this, I am an extrovert, and Riley is an introvert. Let that sink in. I know, it's shocking. <laughs> but our capacity for relationship is very different. Riley is, like, a few close, deep friends, and I am... Everyone is my friend, and I love them all. And so how God made us still in this relationship, in relationship and in community with each other, is that we need to remember that you cannot expect from others what you cannot be or you cannot do. And when we were in ministry, well, I suppose we're still in ministry, but when we were in a more traditional church setting and we were, I was counseling young people and they were dating and stuff like that. And I said, I was like, you cannot expect from someone that you're dating what you yourself cannot be. If you want your boyfriend or girlfriend to be respectful, if you can't be respectful, you have no right to expect that from someone else. If you want someone to be generous, then you cannot expect that if you were not generous yourself. And that's in relationship with each other. If you want for people to show grace, then you have to be willing to show grace. You have to be willing to give grace. You have to be willing to be in this exchange where if you want somebody to do like do or be something to you, you have to be willing to be and do that for other people. But what's interesting is that theologians and even writers um, will argue why the golden rule isn't valid because it kind of negates situation. Like Riley and I have this conversation where like if I see somebody who needs help, I'm like, I definitely want to help you like stop the car I want to help and Riley has a really great perspective he's like if that was me I wouldn't want anybody to help <laughs> like, I'm fine I don't need your please help don't stop. please don't stop the car and run out and like at, like verbally assault me with like love um but it was really interesting because the golden rule negates that and it doesn't consider situation and it doesn't consider um people like that people could be different and so riley's like i wouldn't do to others what i wouldn't do, want for myself which is i don't want somebody to stop in the middle of the road and help me like i'm fine so if he's like if i don't want that then i i don't want i don't want to assume like that everybody wants like me to stop and so what's interesting is that even as we negate like well the golden rule doesn't count for situation and surf and like personality types the idea and the heart of it is to show mercy and to show grace and to show the things that jesus kept teaching prior um to this verse in verse 12 is you cannot expect what you are not willing to be or do and jesus hangs everything on this and so i think if you want forgiveness you need to be forgiving and that within itself is hard. Today I was in a meeting for interns ambassadors and we started talking about conversation. So example, what we're gonna go around to share what when you hear the word confrontation, what's the first word or feeling that you feel? Elizabeth. Run. What? Run. Run. Anxious. Angry. Not anger. Conflict. Kenzie? She out. <laughs> uh like 
bad conflict. Like, <laughs> almost a misunderstanding. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Boop. Confrontation. Disagreement. Disagreement. Awkward. <laughs> yeah. Exactly like that, too, right? Uh, I'm avoiding that. <laughs> Run. <laughs> I have no idea what that word means. Okay. It essentially, oh. That, an, an disagreement. A disagreement. Oh. But like confronting, which means like addressing like it. Like bringing like out a problem yeah. you have yeah. with somebody to them. Like, yeah, well, I might be deeply broken, friend. but I think confrontation, I'm like, opportunity. So let me dive into that. Because <laughs> this idea is that like, confrontation allows us to experience at, like the very thing that we that Christians preach so confrontation is a space to experience forgiveness because when things are going great you're not asking someone for forgiveness everything's going great confrontation is an opportunity to experience mercy because actually in broken relationship is where you get to give or receive mercy and grace and so while I think confrontation means opportunity is because if we're going to preach, like if I, like my soul, I'll speak for myself. If I, as a Christian, if I believe that Jesus Christ came and died and resurrected so that I could have an opportunity to receive the gospel, if I can have an opportunity to be reconciled to the Father, what he did was because there was brokenness and sin created confrontation and his death and resurrection provided the opportunity for me to experience forgiveness, grace, mercy, all the things that I want in relationship so I can be reconciled here. But if I cannot do that with other people, if I cannot give forgiveness, mercy, grace, if I cannot experience it, then how do I preach it effectively? If I don't give forgiveness or receive forgiveness, then how how do I speak to people about why forgiveness is important? If I want to tell a grace, that undeserving favor, then how can I speak to it if I don't have the, the very thing where it is necessary? You think about, like, think about, like, a really great time in a relationship with, like, your best friend. In those really great times, were you asking for grace? Were you asking for mercy? Were you asking for forgiveness or reconciliation? The chances are you weren't. But it is in conflict, in confrontation, that we get to experience the very thing that we preach. And so for me, confrontation represents opportunity. And so why, how does that relate to this? Is that regardless of circumstance, regardless of personality type, the pinnacle of everything that Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount is so that we can give forgiveness, that we can be merciful, that we can be gracious, that we cannot, that we would be intentional about not being like the hypocrites because we need relationship. It doesn't matter what your spiritual stance is. It doesn't matter what relationship or what religion you have and claim to be. You are a human being. And human beings are designed for some level of connectivity and community and relationship with somebody else. There are anomalies like hermits who live in the forest. Those are anomalies. But for the majority, that's not true. And so it's in that relationship where you want forgiveness, you give forgiveness. In relationship where you want grace, you give grace. And so that is what Jesus is talking about. And so this verse in verse 12, it says it's cut straight.
through the religious BS. That's a really spiritual point mm-hmm. right there. I really yeah. want everybody to remember that. Yeah. It cuts through the religious BS and it points straight to our heart. Mm-hmm. That it is in situations like this do we see that we should be to others and do to others what we want them to be to us. But we cannot do that. We cannot have that expectation unless we are willing to be those things. And the hypocrisy comes where we expect somebody to be what we are not willing to be. We are expecting somebody to put in work when we are not willing to put in the work. So here's a question. I'll promise it makes sense to what we're talking about. Why do people hate religion and the church? They feel judged. Judged. Talked down to. Talked down to. Evident hypocrisy. In my years in ministry, I've never met a person who said they hated Jesus. Ever. When we sit down and we sit down and we just talk, no one has ever said, I hate Jesus. But I've had a lot of people express hurt, anger, bitterness because of organized religion and because of the church and because of people who say they follow Jesus. But never have I heard a person say, I hate Jesus but they do hate what his followers do. And why this is important is that we have to remember that more people going to church will not change the world for the better. Church is a, a place where people can gather to grow and to learn. But the reason why people hate the church is because we are broken people gathered into a broken space trying to worship a perfect God. But that in itself is a mental, emotional, spiritual journey. And so the expectation that we might feel towards Christians or to church-going people, those are generally unfair expectations. Like working at Faith Life, I realize that people have such, they have such little grace when something on faithlife.com breaks. And they're like, why is it broken? And I'm like, we are trying, but they're like, I don't understand why it's broken. I'm like, I don't feel like you yell at Facebook like this. I do not feel like when your picture doesn't load, you are not sending an angry message to whatever that guy's name is. What's his name again? Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. I'm sure you're not sending him a message and being like, hey, heads up, I hate you. Heads up, why is this broken? If something on Facebook breaks, we're like, huh, that's a bummer. When something at Faith Life breaks, it's like, why is everything broken? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that's like what's surprising me. Like when I first like working in there too, like they have a social media platform and like everyone like whenever they see any bug, they just like, they're just adding on to it. Like it doesn't matter that like you are on the same, the team that is fixing the bugs or not. Like people like across the whole company, just like they're very aggressive. Spamming bugs, it's like one thing. Kind of frustrated, yeah. Yeah, and they're like, we know, <laughs> but like this is terrible. And th- but that's the thing is like, I'm really sorry right now. Like all the noise is drifting me, but I'm thinking like, how does this tie into the fact that people mm-hmm. hate the church and hate religion, but they don't hate Jesus? Is that people don't. 
Let me reset. We Christians are meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus did not cast stones at the sinners. He ate with the sinners. Jesus did, like, Jesus was more angry with religious people than he was with people who were down and out. Jesus did not care about what it looked like when he sat in the middle of the day with a woman at the well who had five husbands. And the idea, so context, even Jesus with a woman at the well, a Samarian woman, is that Jewish men did not interact with Samarian women. Why it was in the middle of the day is that was the hottest part of the day. So the lower class, that was their turn to go and get the water. So Jesus hangs at this well and he meets this woman and he essentially, he's like, yeah, this isn't your first husband. And she's like, wow, you know a lot about me. He calls her out, but he doesn't judge her. When the religious took, the religious people caught the woman in adultery. It's interesting that they threw the woman in front of Jesus, but they didn't throw the man. It wasn't like she was committing adultery by herself, but they grabbed one and they threw her out. And it said that she was naked. So whatever situation she was in, she was unclothed. They barged in. So heads up, they were also watching. They barge in, they grab her, they throw her out in public. And they say, like, she was sinning. Like, this is an obvious broken sin. She was sinning. And Jesus' response, it said that he knelt down, he wrote something in the sand, and then he said, you without sin cast the first stone. Nobody threw a stone because everyone had sinned. And why? It's like casting the first stone just heads up in the Middle East when they stone you. It wasn't like they gave you freedom of your hands to like defend yourself. Generally, you were buried neck deep so that you couldn't move. And they will take turns throwing stones at your head undefended. So Jesus is like, hey, all of you, especially the ones that threw her out there, if you are without sin, you can go ahead and do, you can throw the first one. They all acknowledge that they had sin. This is how Jesus loved people so radically. Is that when church and religion and in our brokenness of self-righteousness, when we say, well, we should definitely condemn those people because they are stuck in sin. Just remember that Jesus' response was not throwing judgment and throwing hate and throwing shame into the brokenhearted. It was defense of and it was love of them. And so why people hate religion and they hate the church is that for so long we have not shown people who Jesus is. Because if we would show who Jesus is, they wouldn't hate Jesus. They might not even hate the church because we are loving them with an open hand mentality. We are loving them with a reckless abandon that you are a human being created by God and I love you. Not I love you because you fit into my box of people I can love. Not love you because you can do something for me. Every person that Jesus encountered could not do something for Jesus. It was like every person needed something from him. But that wasn't like that wasn't his cap. Like, well, because you need something from me, like, or I, I can't get anything from you. I won't love you. Jesus loved people well. And I began to think, what would it look like if people who say we love Jesus begin to love people like Jesus? And it comes to my next, like, um, something that stuck out at me is that the world 
will not change because more people go to church. Like, and I used to think that church was the answer, but church cannot be the only place where people hear the gospel. Church cannot be the only place people receive Jesus and salvation. And church cannot be the only place people get discipled. Church is a gathering of believers and creating a space where people can enter into and ask questions and experience Christ in the way that we love them. And sometimes I think we make it super spiritual. But I'll be honest, I've probably at Faith Life, I have been able to love people greater than I ever have in, than when I worked at a church. So I don't think more people going to church will make the world a better place. I think the world would change when people who go to church actually live out the truth of the gospel, love like Jesus loves, and lead in the power of the Holy Spirit. But it will not be, world will change. All these evil things will change if people would just come to church. I feel like that's really stacking statistics against you because guess what? Most people don't want to go to church. They don't want our organized religion. But people want to be known. They want to be cared for. And you better bet we have to work to earn a place to speak truth and life into someone's life. We don't get to demand that position. We love them. And when you love somebody... When you are there, when they make really great decisions and when they make really stupid decisions, when you are there, regardless, you begin to earn a place where you are trusted. But it will not be because people go to church. It will be the people who already say they go to church. Live out the gospel, love like Jesus loved, and lead in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so my question, and this isn't a trick question, guys. This isn't a trick question. What is the gospel? If you can say to somebody, if somebody said to you, and why I say this isn't a trick question because it kind of feels like a trick question, like, duh, we should totally know this. Um, but if somebody said to you, in this season of your life, wherever you are at in your faith, if somebody could say, what is the gospel? What would you say? Somebody said to you, what is the gospel? How would you respond? Is it just uh, uh, the story uh, about Jesus? That's a really good place to start, yeah. It is talking about the story of Jesus. It is who Jesus is and how he lived and how his death and resurrection offers us an opportunity to decide whether or not we want reconciliation 
what would you say if somebody said, what is the gospel? What is this good news? Why do you believe? And I want to be very careful to make sure that every person in this circle knows that this is not meant to make you feel bad for not knowing or for not being able to verbalize it. That is not my heart. That is not my intention at all. But why I ask this question is because sometimes I believe as Christians, we make it really complicated. We make it really difficult for people to understand what the good news is at all. And I think of it as it is this incredible gift that is in a room. Everyone's in the room and it's this incredible gift that will never run out. And we have a decision, do you want to open the gift? But the thing is that somebody has to tell them about the gift. Somebody has to tell them about this good news. Somebody has to tell them about this gospel. And my prayer and my hope for each of us here is not that you would come to a place where you're like, I've got this figured out. I've got this gospel thing, this good news thing figured out. But it would be an intentional invitation with that when somebody would ask you that, or when you would think about it, that you would invite somebody into that journey of discovering what that means too. Because the world is not out for us to, like, we are not perfect. Like, like one of, when I tell people I'm a pastor, I generally preface it with, I don't have my crap together. Just so we can level it out and I can be completely real with you, we don't have, my, I don't have my crap together. I get really angry at my kids sometimes and I yell really, really loud. Or I go in my bedroom and I scream really, really loud. Because I'm still learning coping mechanisms. I am a pastor, but I still cuss sometimes when I stub my toe. And when I don't stub my toe, I am still working out a lot of what this is to me. When people, when Riley and I talk about our marriage, I generally preface with like, we do not have our crap figured out. Yesterday, I told Lindsay about this in the car, I got so wildly frustrated at Riley on the phone. And I was like, you're being real sassy. Babe, do I have permission to share this next story? Yeah, yeah. I'm like already there. But like, I was like, you're being so sassy right now. And he's like, I'm not being sassy right now. I'm like, yes, you are. I'm going to get off the phone. And he's like, love you, babe. And I was like, love you too. And then I get off the phone and I was like angry. I was pissed. Like, real upset about it. And I'm like driving and I'm praying. And I'm like, he's just like, taking it all. What? But I was like so upset. And I was driving and I was praying. And I was like, why am I so angry at Riley? Why am I so angry at my husband? And I realized most of my life, I've always had to watch out for myself. I've always had to protect myself. So the idea of being dependent on another person for anything still really bothers me. We've been together for eight years, and what I realized was I wasn't mad at Riley. I was more aware that being dependent on my husband to help me fill out a Nexus application <laughs> showed me that I'm still healing from my childhood. So I always preface, we do not have our crap figured out. I do not have my crap figured out. Like, we're just on this journey. And I have, is that funny? 
<laughs> it's like a suction in his ear. It's crazy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this video, enjoy this audio recording. There's suction in Reed's ear. <laughs> but the thing is that when we project perfection, nobody can relate. When we project we have our crap figured out, nobody can relate. So I don't want you to think about when we say what is the gospel, I don't want you to think about having your crap figured out and having this perfectly <laughs> this perfectly like crafted answer, but I want you to think about how do you personally invite somebody We all did it once. <laughs> At least once. Anyway. <laughs> the uh, question of the, uh, it's what is the gospel? What is the good news? My encouragement is that you would invite people into discovering that with you. That you would invite people into a space where they have enough relationship with you. Where they can be like, what do you do every Thursday? That you would invite somebody into a space where they're like, why do you believe this? And it is okay to say, I don't know, but I know that I feel loved. I know that I am cared for, and I know that these are my people. Like, those are good answers. But I promise you, I've also never met a single person who, like, when they're like, tell me about this gospel, and they just want really big theological words, that's never been the case. They just want to know your story. So my hope and my prayer for you is that you would invite people into your journey and your story because, again, it is a privilege to be invited into that space. And so if the world will change because the people who actually go to church will live out the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and they will love like Jesus loves. The next question is, how did Jesus love people? So I want us all to go around and share Something that you think Jesus did, whether you read it in the Bible or somebody told you about it, but it sticks out to you as like, how did Jesus love this person? So, Twee. Um, I think Jesus uh, loved people by forgiving people. Mm -hmm. uh, I see that because most of the time, like, Jesus is surrounding, you know, like, uh, with people who's already broken so like um, I feel like forgiving is one of the way mm -hmm. that to show that you love someone that's good it, I think it's, it's forgiving someone is hard uh, so if I preach uh, able day to really forgiving someone doesn't matter like what that person they already done have done to you mm -hmm. then that is actually you really love that person that much yeah. to really Totally forget about what bad thing that person did to you. Let's go. Um, I feel like you love people no matter what like status they had or mm -hmm. station in life. You saw like who people really were and welcomed in all sorts of different kinds of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <coughs> you're a 
showed honor to people that society told me you shouldn't honor and he healed people. Something free from what was oppressing them. Mm. Okay. I don't know that many quotes about love. I just remember it's about God the Father, so love the world he gave his only begotten son. Yeah. Can't go wrong with the classic link. Classic. <laughs> Um, I think his love is truly unconditional. If, even if you're down to the point where you're the one killing him, mm-hmm. he was the one who loved you through it. Yeah. He's really good with the golden rule. Mm-hmm. Like the expert, the OG. The OG! Forgiveness <laughs> uh, <laughs> was like, forgiveness was like the big thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, always. Uh, trying to see the better in people. Yeah. Oh, um, by always like uh, being honest with others, even if it's hard, mm-hmm. because like telling people what they want to hear is not necessarily loving them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so what you're saying, I think he shows his love by interacting and spending time with people that um, the rest of society had either abandoned, moved on from, or just didn't show any love, care, and respect to. And that was shown in like every way, whether it was like, you know, tax collectors, or whether it was, you know, people with leprosy, whether it was, you know, the woman that was bleeding, you know, it was all these different things and all the different walks of life, and, you know. He showed them love where they were at. Didn't expect them to change before he would show them love. He showed unconditional love to everyone, and especially when he was put on the cross. Well, he just loved people. Just in all the ways, but like he never passed, like never judged people even though like ultimately oh god would be their judge like he didn't do that while he was here he was just showing that like you can love people no matter what their past is or what's going on in their life he loves people where they are and people that maybe else would follow it and show even more consequences such an example of how we should be. I, I think Jesus is, uh, uh, when you mentioned about the word in translation, mm-hmm. I feel like uh, throughout the uh, Bible or Jesus story that at some certain time that he's actually confront, uh, I mean like not like with anger, but like with the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then confrontation is like, like he confronts people. So that is he giving everyone like the opportunity day to, to, to see how broken the the relationship is. So that is that is the opportunity day to actually fix it. Mm-hmm. I think that is 
loving someone is also like being brave to mm-hmm. confront to really bring it out like you know what you and me have a distance because of whatever it happened in the past let's just talk about it mm-hmm. so that we can figure that out so i think that jesus throughout his life that he actually did that mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people they see that against him mm-hmm. like you know killing him because like he confronted them but finally that he can see you know like why that he have done all that. So like around this room as we went talking about how Jesus loves people, it was a lot of like loving people where they're at, not judging people, living by the golden rule, telling the truth. All these things is like if that is how Jesus loves people, then that's how we should love people. That we should live a life that if somebody goes, how does Tristan love people? It would be, he's gracious. He's never judged me for where I've been in my life. He loves me so much that he will tell me the truth even when it really hurts. Like, how does Riley love people? All the things that ways in which people should be describing of how we love people should very, should very similarly mirror the way that Jesus loved people. And so I want to challenge you also to think about the things that you love the most about how Jesus loves people and then think, well, how do I love people like that? How, like, for me, I am incredibly production driven and I, like, one of the things that I love about Jesus is there never seemed to be an interruption. It was always opportunity. That he would be walking to a place and then like the bleeding woman would touch his robe, um, the tassels, which meant she was essentially on the floor trying to get to him. And he stops, he goes, I, I sense that power left me. Who touched me? And then she had to say, I touched you, the bleeding woman that everybody knew about because by Mosaic law, she could not be around other people. She admitted it. And he goes, your faith has made you well. Like inter- what was supposed to be an interruption was an opportunity. That when he was on his way, somewhere else is like, to go, and that was on his way to uh, see it, uh, what everybody was like, this is, she's dead. The sick child is dead. Like, all these things that we would think, like, perfect example, Jesus would go and teach, and all the disciples would essentially, like, face palm kids and be like, get away from Jesus! Should we do this? (laughs) Get away from Jesus. And he was like, no, let them come to me. Yeah. Right. Right. I don't know what you all this time. Your snails did? I'm so sorry, your snails did. I'm so sorry, did you hear me today? I don't think snails ever run. I'm sorry, Mr. Your snail, I'm sorry, your snail is dead. Do you want to hug? Cool, 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 Maybe because he heard you say yep. something about ladies. Yeah, but she was dead. The, yeah, the yeah. I don't know. His snail's Jesus dead. Jesus was going to heal on the way. Yep. Come on. And he's like, but the snail is dead. Right. But every opportunity that we would um, declare as interruption was is opportunity and so me being highly production driven i 
have to be intentional. Like, I have to think, like, every time somebody interrupts me that I need to be able to say, like, oh, maybe this is an inter- this is an opportunity, that this is a place where I can show people Christ's love. And so the last question that I have for us is my favorite. Boom, this is not a trick question. <laughs> but everyone's like, oh, is who <laughs> is the Holy Spirit. It's not a trick question, I promise. I promise, I promise. Holy <laughs> Spirit that lives in us. Boom. What else? Spirit of Jesus. I just thought it was like your conscience. Mm-hmm. Who in growing, if you grew up in church or in a Christian community, did like we talk about God the Father, we talk about Jesus the Son, but how many people were taught about the Holy Spirit? Some circles is like the Holy Ghost. If you want to roll that way, I do You're not roll ghost, that way. Uh, <laughs> the best one. <laughs> what was that? I said the holiest party don't stop. I did not grow in that environment. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit is essentially the third form or the third part of the Trinity. The word Trinity and the theological concept of Trinity, there nowhere in the in the entire Bible was like, and then this is the Trinity. But it's this eluding imagery that we see of like the Holy Spirit of God the Father and Jesus the Son. Trinity that word itself came way later, but essentially the three parts, the three in one, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit function and exist in this perfect harmony with each other, each of them having their specific role and purpose within this relationship. And so the Holy Spirit was promised to believers when Jesus, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's about to ascend, he makes a promise, there will be one who will come after me. He will be known as the great counselor. He will dwell within you. The reference of the Holy Spirit oftentimes is in the in the Bible. You can see that has more feminine attributes of who the Holy Spirit is and functioning in the Godhead. But essentially, the Holy Spirit is promised to believers, after me will come one who will dwell within you. He will be known as the great counselor. He essentially... Like this idea of conscious, this idea of this Holy Spirit leading you that we, when you are a believer and you receive the Holy Spirit, you are then filled with the Holy Spirit. That's its own theological thing later. But the question is, who is the Holy Spirit will help us learn to live and lead and love in that power and authority that is available through the Holy Spirit? Like one of the things that I want to be more conscious of as I live in a community is I constantly want to be led by the Holy Spirit. I constantly want to find myself in situations where I feel prompted to go pray, to go um, like ask somebody, some like, like to see people and to be prompted to engage with them in conversation. I want to be the Christian that feels prompted to do those things and then to obey those things. To go and say, you know, like, how are you doing? How can I love you? If 
if somebody has a need that I can meet it, I want to be somebody who is so filled with the Spirit of God that even if it's at sacrifice to me, if I know that the Holy Spirit is leading me to do it, then I will do it. Because again, I don't think the world would change because more people would go to church. That is not the answer. I think the world will change when the people who actually go to church will start living out the truth of the gospel, start loving like Jesus did, and start leading in the power and authority that is in the Holy Spirit. And the leading in biblical, <coughs> if you read through the Bible, leadership is servanthood. Leadership is serving. And that's so contrary to what we believe in American culture as leaders. But some of the most effective, influential leaders are people that will never ever say of the things that they do in the background to serve a community. Those are leaders. And so again, the, this golden rule, this idea that we don't want, like don't do to others what you wouldn't want done to yourself, this idea of expectation, this idea of loving like Jesus, this is the pinnacle of everything that Jesus taught. And so we always end with my 